Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Now this is my idea of of the 4th of July. This is really nice, isn't it? It beats walking the length of the FDR for a spot to camp out and watch the fireworks. I'm really glad you found this cruise online. I can't wait to see this show from, from on the water. Plus, that BBQ was so good. Don't forget about the open bar. I could drink that guy's gin and tonics for days. I do love a good cruise on the river. Especially with that beautiful city as the backdrop. One might say the the view is delightful. It's delicious. It's delightful. That was cute. (laughs) I do love a good Cole Porter tune. And that was perfect timing as we go under the Williamsburg Bridge. Why do you say that? Because it's Delancey. Delancey Street. That's the street that Williamsburg Bridge empties onto on the Manhattan side. I thought it was a clever play on words. <laughs> so close. So very close. Then in that case, I'm off for another gin and tonic. Grab me another rum and coke while you're at it, please. You got it. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the toe-tapping show, Anything Goes. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. And welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. You're the top. You're the Colosseum. You are the top. You're the Louvre Museum. But if, baby, we're the bottom, you are the top. And because you are, we're going to share with you the raucous and nostalgic show, Anything Goes. This classic show has graced the Broadway stage several times and has starred many legendary people. But before we leave port, we must first load up on historical luggage first. (laughs) The show came as inspiration from producer Vinton Friedley, who was living on a boat after leaving the U.S. to avoid his creditors. The show went by a few different names such as Crazy Week, Hard to Get, and then finally, Anything Goes. The original plot was to have a bomb threat, a shipwreck, and human trafficking on a desert island. But just before the show was to open, there was a fire on a passenger ship, the SS Morrow Castle, that caused the death of 138 passengers and crew members. Friedley thought it would be in bad taste to continue the show, as is, and insisted on a new script. Before you think too highly of him, theater historian Lee Davis maintains that Friedley wanted to change the script because it was a hopeless mess. 
The original two authors were unavailable to do the rewrites, so the director, Howard Lindsay, and his soon-to-be lifelong collaborator, Russell Kroos, rewrote the book. Billy Croxer, sorry, Billy Crocker and Moonface Martin were written for the well-known comedy team of William Gaxton and Victor Moore. There are four versions of the libretto that exist. The 1934 original, a 1962 off-Broadway version, the 1987 version, and finally the 2011 version. For our sake, we will be telling you the synopsis for the 1987 version as it's the most consistently produced version, but it will also help to know the 2011 revival we saw has only a few minor changes. Also, a few notes about some of the songs that were added to the show. The song Friendship was actually written for Cole Porter's Dewberry Was a Lady musical in 1943, but was so popular and fit so well that it was added into the show in the 1962 version. It's the Lovely was written for Red, Hot, and Blue in 1936, and Let's Behave was written for the show Paris. The original production opened at the Alvin Theater, now known as the Neil Simon Theater, on November 21st, 1934, and closed on November 16th, 1935. It ran for 420 performances. It famously starred Ethel Merman and Vivian Vance. This was before the Tony Awards, so there are no awards for the original production. The original production was the fourth longest-running musical of the 1930s, which was quite a feat because of the impact of the Great Depression on patrons' disposable income. In 1987, the show was revived at the Vivian Beaumont Theater. It opened on October 19, 1987, and closed on September 3, 1989, running for 784 performances. It starred such actors as Patty Lapone and Jerry Vici, and it was directed by Jerry Zaks. Other designers included choreographer Michael Smuin, scenic and costume designer Tony Walton, lighting designer Paul Gallo, sound designer Tony Maiola, and hair uh, by David Lawrence and wigs by Paul Huntley. The show was nominated for 10 Tonys and won for Best Revival of a Player Musical, Best Choreography, and Best Featured Actor for Bill McCutcheon. Once again, the production we will be focusing on in this episode will be the 2011 Roundabout Theater Revival. So let's bring on that design team. Music and Lyrics by Cole Porter. Original book by Guy Bolton, P.J. Wodehouse, Howard Lindsay, and Russell Krauss. New book by Timothy Krauss and John Weedman. Directed and choreographed by Kathleen Marshall. Scenic design by Derek McLean. Costume design by Martin Pakladines. Lighting design by Esther Kazarowski. Sound design by Brian Ronan. Hair and wig design by Paul Huntley and makeup by Angelina Avalon. The show arrived at the Stephen Sondheim Theater on April 7th, 2011 and played for 521 performances, closing on July 8th, 2012. The show would be nominated for nine Tony Awards that season and sail away with three that evening. Best Revival of a Musical, 
Best Actress in a Leading Role for Sutton Foster, who played Reno Sweeney, and Best Choreography for Kathleen Marshall. Before we dive into our story, there is one last production worth noting. A revival directed and choreographed by Kathleen Marshall based on the 2011 Roundabout Theatre Company production opened at the Barbican Theatre in London on August 4th, limited season ending November 6, 2021. It starred Sutton Foster as Reno Sweeney and Robert Lindsay as Moonface Martin. The production repurposed the original set designs by Derek McLean, sound designs by Simon Baker, lighting design by Neil Austin, and musical supervision and direction by Stephen Ridley. Foster departed the production in October 2021 and was succeeded by Rachel York, respectively, who appeared in the production until it closed in November. During its run, the show was filmed and was streamed on November 28th and December 1st, 2021, to over 450 regional cinemas starring Foster, Lindsay, and Kendall. The recorded performance will also play at U.S. cinemas on March 27th and 30th, 2022. So, now that we're all loaded up, let's set sail on our adventure! Young Wall Street broker Billy Crocker helps his boss, Elijah J. Whitney, prepare for his trip to London. Eli tells Billy the next morning he's to make a huge sale of a sinking asset. Billy then runs into his friend, evangelist-turned-nightclub singer Reno Sweeney, who is leaving on the same ship to London. Reno tries to convince Billy to join her, but he refuses and she laments her unrequited love for him. Billy then reveals to Reno he's fallen in love with someone else, and she berates him, believing he led her on before sadly reaffirming her feelings for him after he leaves. The next morning, the crew of the SS American prepares to set sail as Reno and the other passengers board. Amongst them is debutante Hope Harcourt, joined by her wealthy English fiancé, Lord Evelyn Oakley, and her mother, Evangeline, the subject of Eli's infatuation, who has set her daughter up to be married in order to solve their family's recent financial struggles. Billy comes aboard to give Eli his passport and spots Hope, the woman he loves. Upon hearing that she's to be wed, he stays on the ship in order to pursue her. Also sneaking onto the American is public enemy number 13, Moonface Martin, who's disguised as a priest. He's joined by Irma, a promiscuous girlfriend of public enemy number one, Snake Eyes Johnson, who is nowhere to be found. Billy inadvertently helps Moonface evade the FBI, who returns the favor by giving Billy Snake Eyes ticket as the ship leaves dock. Later that night, Billy bumps into an apologetic Reno, who encourages him to go after his real love. When Billy starts to express insecurities about being with Hope, Reno builds up his confidence while playing, playfully putting herself down, and he returns the favor. 
Billy then scares off a seasick Evelyn so he can court Hope away from him. Though she returns Billy's feelings, Hope insists on maintaining her duty and marrying Evelyn. Once alone, though, she repeats his romantic words. Eli drunkenly sings about his excitement for the trip, reminisces on his days in Yale, and unsuccessfully invites Evangeline to spend the night with him. In the next room over, Moonface and Irma are visited by Billy, who hides when the ship's captain comes in and reveals that Billy is believed to be Snake Eyes Johnson. The next morning, a quartet of sailors sing about the joy of seeing women as they come ashore while Irma steals another seaman's clothing to disguise Billy from the crew and his boss. Reno then encounters her old friend Moonface shortly after which Evelyn approaches her and reveals himself to be a huge fan. Evelyn invites Reno for tea in his room, which Moonface convinces her to accept so she can seduce Evelyn which they'll use to blackmail him and break up his engagement. Reno agrees to his plan, and they sing about what great friends they are, only to descend into bickering. The attempted extortion proves to be a failure, with Reno and Evelyn instead finding themselves utterly charmed by each other. Billy and Moonface then try to frame Evelyn as a madman to Evangeline, only for Hope to step in and expose Billy's identity. The crew pursues him while Reno reprimands Hope for ignoring her own happiness and chasing away the man she loves. Hope breaks into tears before Billy returns to serenade her, with her now reciprocating. However, the next morning, Hope struggles to tell her mother of her real love, and shortly afterwards, Billy is apprehended by the crew. The captain then releases Billy to satisfy the celebrity-crazed passengers, and he basks in the fame of being a gangster, whilst Moonface blows his cover to do the same. An upset Hope walks away whilst onlooking Reno leads the ship in a tap dance and remarks that nowadays, anything goes. We see Act 2 start with the whole ship to honor Billy as public enemy number one. After unsuccessfully trying to get him and Hope back together, Reno begins her performance for that night. She starts out the sermon asking passengers to confess their sins. In his confession, Evelyn tells everyone of the time he had casual sex with a Chinese woman named Plum Blossom. Reno then performs a lively gospel number with everyone else joining in, Blow Gabriel Blow, at which point she declares, They've seen the light! The passengers then convince Billy to make a confession, and he reveals that he's not Snake Eyes Johnson and apologizes to Hope. Moonface tries and fails to defend him, and both are thrown into the brig. Reacting to this development, Evangeline moves the wedding up to the next morning on the ship, and a heartbroken Hope realizes her chance at true love is over. In the brig, Moonface attempts to cheer up a depressed Billy, by telling him to be like the bluebird. Irma's, Irma visits them to deliver a letter from Hope where she confesses her feelings for Billy, at which point they both, on separate parts of the ship, express their love. Reno then meets Evelyn on the deck where he admits that he doesn't love Hope and he hints that he's fallen for her instead. Despite this, his sense of honor and family code causes him to not break off the engagement. 
Reno then notes that his one-night stand in China contradicts this. After her prodding, Evelyn reveals his Romani ancestry and the wild side he had previously tried to keep hidden. He shows his true feelings for her. She requites them, and they have a passionate tango dance. Two Chinese passengers are thrown into the brig with Billy and Moonface for gambling. Reno then comes to tell her friends that she and Evelyn have fallen in love with each other. Knowing that the Chinese will be let out in an hour, the three then steal their clothes to get Billy and Moonface out in time to stop the wedding. On deck, Irma is proposed to by all the sailors she slept with during the cruise. She warns them that if they start a relationship, she won't be easily pleased. The wedding starts, but is interrupted when Reno, Billy, and Moonface run in wearing Chinese garb. They claim that Reno is Plum Blossom, who is actually a Chinese princess that Evelyn dishonored when he slept with her. The ruse is almost ruined when Moonface accepts Eli's bribe to leave, but Hope intervenes by saying the only way for Evelyn to right his wrong is if he offers her to Plum Blossom's relative. Evelyn goes along with this, giving hope away to Billy, and then proposing to Reno, who accepts as she unmasks herself. Evangeline is distraught over the idea of becoming poor, but Eli proposes to her, bragging that his recent Wall Street sale has made him rich. Their mutual delight is cut short when Billy unveils his identity and informs his boss that he never made the sale. Evangeline prepares to leave Eli immediately, but before she can do so, a wire comes in saying that the stock that wasn't sold has gone through the roof, making him even richer than he imagined. All three couples now together sing to each other as they're married and the whole ship celebrates. The The End Well, then let's talk about the parts of the show we loved and the parts that we didn't love and everything in between. So... I adored this show. You know, I'm not normally like a Golden Era musical fan. I think you are. You just don't know it yet. You won't accept it. You need to come to Golden Musicals Anonymous. (laughs) Golden Era Musicals Anonymous? Just Golden Musicals, you know. GM, GMA. GMA, that's what that's for. Don't tell ABC that I'm, I'm using that. <laughs> well, I I will say I tend to like them when they update the score. Um, so I do like this show. I love me some Cole Porter sound, so. Cole Porter. Cole Porter. Cole Porter. You know what? You, uh, you be nice over there. No, it's a really... It's a really fan. First of all, let me let me back up for a minute. So Roundabout Theater, who produced this, they... Um, they do revivals. That's basically, well, primarily what they do, I should say, because I think they're how I, I don't know if they're producing it, but they're housing the minutes. But I know when it comes to musicals, as I understand it, they, they do revivals. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's how they do plays. But anyway, um, and I've, like, that is the company I want doing revivals. They just, oh, they do it so well. They do beautiful jobs. So whenever I see, like, a lesser-known work, 
by roundabout. I'm just like, this is going to be good. You know, I've yet to see something at roundabout that I'm like, ooh, swing and a miss. No. So the level is already high given that they're producing it. This is a show that I've known of and and I loosely knew the story um, because everyone and their dog was doing it in high school. You know, it was actually on the docket as one of the shows he might have done my senior year. Um, and of course, everybody knows the song and, and a lot of the Cole Porter hits. But to see it just done so brilliantly, when you've got that familiarity of it, you have to do it eat that much better. Everything has to be just that much more perfection. And and I feel like they really, they hit all that bar, all, all, all those marks, excuse me. And... Yeah, so I, that's why I adore the show. I love the simple and the familiar story. It wasn't a labored story, you know. There wasn't this um, really, I mean, it really isn't this deep plot. It's very much your 1920s. It's frivolous. Flopsy. Yeah. Well, and um, something that I really adore about this show is just that light. I mean, in my head, the show is as light as Fred Astaire and Ginger, Ginger Rogers' feet. That's what I can see, which I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, there, um, it, there, there's no heaviness to it. Right, it does. It's not deep. Even the the heightened drama, it just feels like borderline melodramatic. Like you know, everything's gonna work out in the end. It, we're not diving into any. Yeah, you're still issues. captivated by everything. Yeah. It, the, so the nice thing is, like this show has have like an intense theater, if that makes sense. Like really high stakes theater, really well performed theater. You know, they're they're performing at an 11, but the material itself is not life or death kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If that makes if that makes any sense, you know, they're they're not dealing with really tough issues or stuff that they have to, you know, oh, gangster. You know, it's not so heavy. What they have to do is they have to sell everything in this really over the top lighthearted way. Mm-hmm. And it also it is a musical comedy and comedy is all about timing and honesty and truth and it has to be fresh every time 100 percent um for me a lot of this show and my references for it came from pop culture like i had seen the reference of the ship with someone looking like reno sweeney standing in front of it with all the sailors and then the anything goes part and so i really hadn't had any context of what the show was but i had seen it the that iconic imagery presented in tons of pop culture oh yeah um especially like the simpsons and i was like oh i always i've always wondered what that's from and then as soon as i saw anything goes like the posters coming out and i was like that's the show that that's from i have to see it and i don't know why i had to but i had to and i'm so glad i did and well and just the the songs themselves just that nostalgic the nostalgic songs and nostalgic feel cole porter I mean, we we were blessed at a time where we had people like Gershwin and Porter and Bernstein and Berlin and Berlin and Rodgers and Hart, Rodgers and Hammerstein writing this amazing American songbook. I mean, you take some of those songs out of context from the the musical, and I mean, everybody knows them. You're the top. It's the lovely all through the friendship. night. Friendship. Anything mm-hmm. goes. Anchor, uh, bon voyage, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it really speaks to um, just how, like, 
encompassing of feeling those songs were that they can live outside of their musicals without any context. Right. And and before we break things even further, I, I would like to say that um, the chemistry between the cast was amazing. Particularly, I remember Sutton Foster and Joel Grey. It was just... Uh, I mean, I mean, the relationship between Reno and, and, and Bill... Moonface. No, no, no. Bill. Billy. Billy, thank you. Was also really great. It, it seemed like best friends, you know, like that tomboy kind of girl and the best friend, you know, and he didn't realize that she liked him kind of thing. But mm-hmm. the, the, the palling around relationship between Moonface and Reno, so Joel and Sutton, I mean, it was ridiculous. And what I, and actually I was talking to you about this um, the other night when we saw MJ, and I was saying, I'm starting to think it's a Sutton Foster thing. Because, you know, her and Music Man, the the chemistry, the between. chemistry between her and Hugh, and then just amongst the cast in general is fantastic. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of remember this and Anything Goes, where like her I also and that. Joel are trying to one-up each other, make each other laugh in that friendship number mm-hmm. and the everything. same with her and Brian Darcy James. And Shrek. It, uh-huh. Yeah, and so I'm just like... All right, Sutton Foster, stop having so much fun on stage. Like, <laughs> she, I can only imagine, like, being able to act across from her. Like, she must be an absolute joy to be in a scene with. But, yeah, the chemistry was, and I think that really is, like, icing on the top of the cake in a, in a fun show like this, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so let's break it down a little bit more. You know, let's, let's dive into the, to the ship a little bit more on the first deck. Um, set. <laughs> it is a roundabout theater production. Okay, so I'm just going to get this out of the way real quick. It is a roundabout theater production. Everything was gorgeous and extravagant. Now, moving on. Um, set. <laughs> it was extravagant and larger than life. But And one of the things that I remember the most of was the blue of the, of the backdrop and the blue of the curtain and just the, the color, the shade of blue that they used in this show was like it's own blue that every time I see it I'm like oh anything goes and it's not like it's a special blue well I, I don't feel like it's a common it. blue like that if that makes any sense I don't it doesn't seem like a blue you see in everyday it's life it's like cerulean blue I don't know what that word means it, I feel like hell from blue. Good Burger I know what some of these words mean blue <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, what I mean is like you recognize it as blue, but I I challenge you to find that blue in in real life. Oh yeah, well it's it's just like Tiffany blue. You know what Tiffany blue is? Yeah, exactly. I, the the ship set was uh, incredible. So so the pretty much the entire show it, it it takes place like with this giant set piece of a ship of of the deck. And I mean, it's enormous and it's functional. If I think mm. if I remember, it was three stories that they could walk amongst of being on the deck. And I remember particularly, I mean, just that huge, the way upstage, kind of like against the psych, was where kind of the, the two-story deck was, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the stage itself was just one big, um, piece of deck, if that makes sense. The bottom floor of the deck. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm making sense, but what was great about that is it allowed us to kind of get that angle on the ship, which was brilliant. And the fact that they used that for so much 
particularly in that big dance number of Anything Goes, and they transformed it and turned it into a dance floor for Below Gabriel Blow, or when they were using it to move all the luggage and that on Bon Voyage, you mean Bon Voyage. Right. Well, and one thing that I really remember from it is just how, even though we were playing in different parts of the ship, they didn't have to be literal, like literal parts of the ship. They kept the ship in the background and they brought a few things onto that deck yeah, part and, and you were like, just... oh, we're here, but we're still on the ship. Exactly. And I really loved that they kept it simple um, be- and the audience suspended their disbelief without yes. even realizing it. They brought these two stairs in at the top of Act 2 for Blow Gabriel Blow on the side that like were curved. And then they also brought like the centerpiece in for her to be the stage where Rena performs. And... All of it was just this 1920s Art Deco film. I, I live for Art Deco. If I had all the money in the world after I stuck it in my ears, um, I would just love a place full of Art Deco. I just, the Empire State Building is my building. Like, I <laughs> live for it. So to see all these little Art Deco 1920s touches that they would then, you know, because before it was white and blue. Really clean cut like a ship. And then they bring in top of Act 2 these gorgeous curves. And, you know, because Art Deco isn't necessarily just straight angles. It's got those curved angles. And I was just all about that. It was, yeah. And the the last thing I wanted to say is for some reason the bar stood out to me in the opening scene. Mm-hmm. And I think it has more to do with the lighting, which we'll get to. But I just remember that bar. And also it might be because it's the really the only time... I think we're not on, I mean, we're not on the ship, but I think we don't see the ship. Because if I remember right, the bar scene takes place. And then when we leave the bar after that opening number, That's the where we backdrop the ship. picks up and we see the ship. Mm-hmm. If memory serves me right. It's been quite a hot minute. But know. I think that sounds right to me. So. Um, I guess we'll have to watch the film version. Yeah, to Lincoln Roma. Center. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, if they, if they did a complete direct copy... As we mentioned, March 27th, we could be in the... Well, I could be in the cinema. The 30th. The third, I mean, if you have the night off. Right. Miss eight shows a week. Um, so let's move on to costumes. Because I feel like before we go to lights, we should go to costumes. Because the lights will have something to do with the costumes. The costumes. I mean, they're iconic. They are yes. 100% iconic. Um, the thought or the imagery that comes to my mind is that sailor look yes um and really if you're thinking about sailors in musical theater um it is an iconic imagery from the american musical repertoire Mm -hmm. and if you're not thinking of anything goes you're thinking of on the town i would also throw dames at sea in there but definitely the top two would be on the town or anything goes i agree yes well and i just i mean no offense to dames at sea i just don't think it's as iconic as anything goes especially like you know you have on the town where you have sailors dancing but when it comes to anything goes the sailors are the like the focal point and especially reno being in a sailor like outfit without being an actual sailor leading the charge and to me i think that that imagery is so important and so empowering because you see a woman leading these men yes i i agree i mean 
strong feminist character long before their time. What can you say? Right. Well, well I mean, and I think a lot of that has to do with Ethel Merman, who originated the role. Well, I also have, think it has something to do with Cole Porter being a homosexual. And he loved his mother. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is like, I think it was intended or, or received at the time as being a woman surrounded by handsome men. Yes, but I think... And we're all featuring that... this beautiful woman. But in actuality, the material and whatnot hasn't changed. And what it well, is, is I, it's I, a beautiful I, woman kind of commanding a handsome man. I can see that imagery. But for me, the way that just the costumes present the story as well, she stands out from them in so many ways. Um, and I think that that's just... That's good costuming. Yeah. To not only give her this power because she is in pants... No, I, oh, she, I completely she's agree. She's in pants, and she has the same silhouette, but a little bit more feminized, but not so much that it's like, oh, making her a sex object. Yes. It has let her keep her power as a strong female in the show, which I just think is good costuming, as well as good storytelling. Well, she's meant to be like a rebel because she's a singer kind of thing, so we had to make her look... I, you know, no, no, no. And so the pants of the time, you know, and I'm like, no, but I think it, it actually, it's opposite logic. You know what I mean? She's not in this gorgeous dress. She's in these pants and all the men want her for that much more reason. She's, she's the bad girl. It's, it's her being able to be a bad girl at that time, if that makes sense. Being a bad girl mm. elegantly. Yes. Being a rebel, you know, which mm-hmm. I, but I loved it though. And, and, and this production it was so, the costumes did it so well. The fit, the colors, the just everything, it all just worked so right. well. I, in my head, I can see DeLovely um, happening, and I can see uh, Billy and Hope dancing. Mm-hmm. And just the way that she, when she twirled in that pink, pink dress, dress. yes, and just the way that the fabric moved. Yes. It's just, it reminded me of any clip I've ever seen of Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. And, Fred Astaire. Yeah. and it's that other, it's that nostalgic connection um, that's just so beautiful from the time now. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is problematic from our past, but you really get that essence of that beautiful Americana feel. Yes. And I mean, what I loved is having that dress. I felt like the dress was alive. Because when she was standing there, you could see it draped around her silhouette. But the minute she did start to move, it and it started to flutter in that, it looked like it was a whole different outfit. And that that was just incredible. And I, that's that's artistry. That's design, you know. Um, the so art we, of draping is not dead. No. Come see the theater. It's alive and well. No, to make, to make a costume or a wig or something move based on a person's movement so that it looks alive is incredible. Not just like it's, oh, it's, you know, it's hairography or whatever. No, to actually make it look independent of the person is incredible. Well, to make it look like an <clears throat> extension of the person. Yes, exactly. Um, I one, the other Another costume piece that really stood out to me was Eli's smoking jacket when he's in his room, his, his um, cabin. Just mm-hmm. getting sloshed, and he's singing about Yale and that. I don't know why, but also, uh, it reminded me of like the SNL Five Timers jacket. I could see. And that. he's just like sitting there, and I think it was like a purple jacket, but he's just sitting there, and he's. I mean, it's just this simple thing, but I'm like, 
Homeboy has like two looks, a bl- like a blue suit and then this smoking jacket. Mm-hmm. Okay. Rich man, two looks. and But then you look on the flip side at Evangeline and it's like, I'm going to dinner. I've walked through the door. Quick change. Now I've sat down. Quick change. Mm-hmm. I've just finished the hors d'oeuvres course. Quick change. And Eli probably just showed up and he's just, ah, da, da, smoking jacket, pants optional, you know. <laughs> So I, but I love that, that smoking jacket. Um, and we can't forget about Joel's many outfits. His, that, that Marx Brother-esque many costumes and mustaches and You such. love that word, esque. Esque. This podcast is now Stage Whisper-esque. Oh, sponsored gosh. by Esque Wire. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, I'm, but you remember like when he's popping out of, of the, the, the uh, not portholes, but you know, the giant tuba... Sousaphone bell things. I'm not a <laughs> look. I haven't been on a a, a ship, so I I don't know what they're I called. I would have. I thought they were called portholes. I don't Are know. Are portholes the windows? I don't know. Anybody out there who's in the navy or sales, can you help <laughs> us out? They look like the sousaphone bells, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know he's air vents. Air, I don't know. I don't know. But you know, and he, or he's walking around. He's got all these many different disguises and that, and I just I love that. Um, the other thing I really want to mention is just how beautiful the hair was. Can we talk about the hair? I mean... That... Oh. Reno Sweeney's wig for Sutton. Oh. oh. Gorgeous. I want my hair like that hair, all the time. Especially with the hat. Mm-hmm. The pin curls in this show. I love a pit-up hairdo with the pin curls in that. Mm-hmm. And I that hair was just... Oh. Gorge. Yeah. And the fact that Sutton's hair kept its hold and everything because homegirl was dancing for her life. I mean, it was incredible. That's... I mean, it helps that she's a fantastic angel who I swear doesn't sweat, so... Must be nice. I mean, I do a crossword (laughs) puzzle and it's like three-letter word for the... You know? Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, the hair was just... It was. every. I mean, and, and I should say, it's not just... The, the leading ladies, I mean, I, even the ensemble, the hair was just, mm-hmm. it was perfect on the ball. Mm-hmm. That I love, I love perfect hair of the time that just, and it fits. It's not, it, the designer didn't try to fit a stereotype of the time, you know, like, oh, I think this is kind of what is perceived as the 1920s or something. They actually did their homework and went, well, this is actually what hair of that time looked like. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's a lot of people that go, oh, what I love is like this kind of look and it's clearly 40s. It's like, actually, that's 1960s. Yes. Or, that's 1950s. But actually, hair look like that is this. And it's like, oh. So I really appreciated that. Um, now, oh, oh, the last thing I want to mention, because it's, well, we can mention lights, lights. Let's go to lights. <laughs> um, I loved the color palette used in the show because it was simple. God bless America, red, white, and blue. That's true. Um, for the bulk of the show, we were in whites and blues, which reflected the costumes. And see, I can't see how I went there. Um, like you mentioned, Sutton's costumes with the sailors dancing and anything goes. They were all like in these white sailor outfits, but she was in this white and blue striped top with a blue sash and everything. Mm-hmm. And yes. having that white lighting just made everything feel bright. Uh-huh. and warm and just you know but everybody was just in hues of whites and blues 
mm-hmm. which I thought was brilliant. And um, whenever there was a secret, like on stage, some, someone had a secret going on, or there was lust or love, red was brought in, whether it was like purple or pink or something. And particularly, uh, is it Evelyn? The mm-hmm. British guy who's got the gypsy in me. Mm-hmm. He was in red a lot, or he had red clothing as well. If you know, it's like the... He the, had little pops of red, like the red ascot. That's the word. I was like, not the cummerbund, the ascot, the scarf. <laughs> uh, God, I'm a dresser. I should know this. Um, you know, and so I thought that that palette, it was gorgeous. It was so gorgeous, you know. Um, it was a bright show. And, and I think that helped in, enhance the larger-than-life set. Mm-hmm. 100%. Well, and I think, at least in, in my mind, um, it needed to be bright because if it were too blue, um, you'd start to think it was the Titanic, and that's not the direction of this show. No. Um, it, uh, I think that bright also helped enhance our art. Our elation. Right. Well, and to remind us that this is a musical comedy. Yeah, it's a comedy. It's got me bright. And speaking of, of reminding us it's a comedy, we got to talk about this direction. The direction was fabulous. Oh, yeah. There was so much play within the entire cast. Yes. Um, That, you know, has to come from the direct... Fa- oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen... But you know what I mean? Like, there there was just... There was so much play. Everyone had a fully fully realized character that just interacted aboard this cruise ship. Mm-hmm. Well, with the show so familiar and that's been done so much, um, and then the last time it was on Broadway was such a huge success and many people still believe that Patti LuPone deserved the Tony. <laughs> We're not going to get into that controversy here, but join us later. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, you the bar is already set so high. That's where you have to start. Mm-hmm. So... You have to go from there and, and, and making sure that you're bringing together all the design elements and then delivering something fresh and new with material that's known it's and dated. dated. Mm-hmm. That's not an easy thing at all. You are restricted in that sense. And there's only so much rewriting you can do. Exactly. Like you can't, you can't magically change the character's arc. Exactly. Exactly. And so I thought that, that, that she did a fabulous job mm-hmm. in just KISS, keeping it simple, stupid. Just, we're going to put on a show. It's going to be fun, high energy, lots of... It's going to be a good old-fashioned show. Lots of big dance numbers. Good love story. Slapstick humor. We're going to have fun. Mm-hmm. We're going to... And that, it's going to be a musical comedy at the very definition of it. And Boom. I love that the love story was ever present and kept us melting in our seat while the slapstick comedy was there to keep us laughing all the way. Mm-hmm. You know, you were you were fawning over the easy to be love songs and the lovely and all that, mm-hmm. but then you were you were like laughing your butt off at friendship or be like the bluebird and that. You know, uh-huh. you're like great. We've got this wonderful blend dynamic. Of, yeah, you and you need both to to get that going. Um, the mix that, and you mix that with the spectacle of the vocals and the dancing, and you really have a craftsman piece of theater. Right, well, and I feel like that's the thing that made these iconic, classic American musicals so 
successful and made it so that the genre had a place to go and could give us everything that we have because they just were so well blended with all things that all audience members want to get out of a show. I agree. You know, because it can be hard to take, you know, thought-provoking stories and whimsy and singing and dancing and shove them all together in a bag, shake them up, and then throw them on stage. Yeah. You know, that's a lot of information. And so what was happening, you know, in the 1920s, 30s, when we were developing the American musical as we know it, um, that's that's kind of what makes these shows special um, because they were the development of musical theater. Um, so you had to have that little bit, you still had that little bit of the musical theater review, which is also a little bit of vaudeville, while still creating these dynamic, in-depth stories Yes. Um, that audiences can attach to and walk away with um, something more than just an entertaining night. I agree. Yeah, good point. Um, moving on to the music, it's Cole Porter. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful music with wonderful lyrics to match. The songs, they're like a good scotch. And speaking of a good scotch, well, I guess I shouldn't do that. It's a little early in the day. But um, it's smooth and it's savory, you know. And But sometimes it burns a little going down. You've got these beautiful, smooth songs like All Through the Night. And then you've got savory songs like De Lovely. And then you've got these burning songs like Anything Goes. It's just wonderful. You, you know, that is a great way to describe this. I think that's a beautiful me- metaphor. Anything Andrew. Goes is like a good scotch. Thank you, everyone. And that's mm-hmm. it for me. I finally got a good metaphor. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. We're done. No, <laughs> Um, and the other thing that I loved is the orchestra. And this isn't something that we normally mention, but I, I feel like I need to mention this with this show. It was so alive and amazing. This was one of those shows that I could not believe that the music was live. Like, it was just that freaking good. I was mm-hmm. like, this has got to be a recording. But no. Remember, folks, on Broadway, when you see a musical... That music is live. Yeah. God bless the union. You know. They do it eight shows a week at that level. Yeah. And that's just amazing. What you hear is it's being made right there in the theater. So it was incredible. Um, As for choreography, um, I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the dance in the show. I think everybody knows about the dancing in the show. Hello, Masterclass and Tap. Look up the number Anything Goes from uh, the show. It is one of my favorite tap numbers in existence. Yeah, I mean, seeing Sutton dan- tap dance in Music Man, I was like, oh, shocker, we're having her tap? She must have <laughs> learned this for the show. Oh, wait a minute. She did this 10-minute tap number and anything goes I mean, and sang a- and belted before mm-hmm. and after the big tap number. Right. Like- well, I mean, she's a tapper. She's She is, you know, known for her tap dance quality. I think to her, you know, I remember watching her tap in Shrek. And I loved that. I Sutton can do... Uh, listen, Sutton can do no wrong. And um, the thing that I just admire about the dancing in the show is it, it, it was 2011 and it was absolutely blowing that modern audience away with a style of dance that was from the 1920s. So, you know, almost a century old style of dance was still blowing a modern audience away and we had, you know, we've got technology. Our attention span's a little bit harder smaller. to yeah, capture. Exactly, you know. There, there was an article that said, can the modern theater audience be held, their attention be held for a three-hour show or a three-and-a-half-hour show, or are we really destined to just have 90-minute or one-hour shows? You know, 
And um, here you have an audience that's completely consumed, not just by these big dance numbers like Blow Gabriel Blow or anything else, but there was this beautiful... We mentioned it before, like um, when um, you'd be so easy to love when, when Billy and Hope dance, and it's very Rogers... Uh, Fred, me, Astaire Fred Astaire and, and Ginger Rogers, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know... I feel like younger audiences were seeing this, and of course they were amazed by the tap, but then they were intrigued by these beautiful... Ballroom dances? Yeah, and they were like, I, I feel like I've seen that before, and hopefully someone was wise enough to be like, you need to YouTube Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and see that, and they go, oh my gosh, I want to learn how to do that. And it's like, yes, you do, you mm-hmm. know? So it was smart choreography. It was It was, it was great. beautiful. Yeah. The show has had several notable performers, including Ethel Merman, Vivian Vance, Patti Lapone, Sutton Foster, Stephanie J. Block, Joel Gray, Jessica Walters, and Laura Ozines. You can search for miles around, and not one like me can be found. I've got a smile, a wonderful smile, and a certain little way. And every time the boys get near me, they look at me and say, Red Hot Mama, Red Hot Mama, you're the one we need. Red Hot Mama, Dum Dum, yes indeed. They say that I should be in the Follies, Hot Tamales. They say that I've got a pair of So let's now talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. So theatrical impact. It is a brilliant Cole Porter piece. I would say for a modern audience, I would say this is the most iconic Cole Porter piece. Okay. Um, Or at least the most memorable Cole Porter piece. Um, I'm trying to think of... Kiss Me Kate. Oh, you're right. (laughs) You're right. I always forget that he did Kiss Me Kate. Yeah. Um, and I know he did uh, other things as well. Oh, he's just, done a lot, and I'm not saying I just can't think of them brilliant. off the top of my head, but I, I know where you're going with this. But this is a brilliant Cole Porter piece. Um, it added a number of songs to the American Songbook, which I think is also important. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our modern musicals, I don't know that we are aware of which songs might be added to our American songbook just yet. We don't know what songs are going to be timeless. Right. You know, we uh, when a show comes out and it's a big hit and it's popular, it's popular then, but flash forward 10 years, are we still... Right, because the American songbook is really identified by the song's longevity exactly. in our public conscious. Exactly. So, you know, many of these songs lasted in the American songbook. Um we created a work that is embedded in the tomes of musical theater. Not only that, but there are just so many references that started in the musical theater and made such an impact that they made it into residual pop culture references to keep reminding audiences that wouldn't see musical theater that musical theater is out there. Yeah. It's created this iconic imagery that keeps bringing people back. Yeah, and, making them and, and then I would piggyback on that saying that this work has become one that's accessible for all, community through Broadway. This is a show that anyone and everyone not only can do, but is accessible for any audience member. This is not one that, you know, you, you need to be an experienced theater goer to go and, uh, and understand and enjoy. You literally, mm. 
anyone from this is their first show to this is their 400 show can go and see and enjoy. Uh, the one other thing I'll say is I'm not sure if at the time, I don't think this would be the case, but definitely now, this show made it necessary for the modern Broadway performer. And if you're out there, you know what I'm talking about. If you're out there and you don't know what I'm talking about, gather up school children, here we go. Back in the day, you had your singers, you had your dancers, and you had your actors. They were three separate people. But with shows like Anything Goes, all of a sudden you had your to have your singer-dancer actors. Yeah, your you triple had to have, you had, yeah, you had to be a triple threat. So Reno Sweeney cannot be played by three different people, yet Reno Sweeney has to be able to sing, must be able to dance, and must be able to act. Must have brilliant comedic timing, must be able to play highs and lows, must be able to fall in love, but also command the stage. Right, so all of a sudden you're getting, you, are, you now have the modern Broadway performer that must be a triple threat. And shows like Anything Goes help start to usher that in we started getting away from you know just three separate performers on stage to everyone's actually wearing multiple hats and to the uh, to to what we see today you know um very rarely will you see performers on stage who can't do all three very rarely so that's one other theatrical impact it had as for societal impact I don't think this really had much of a societal impact. Yeah. I didn't change the world. It wasn't bringing attention to any social issues. I wouldn't even say brought a whole new generation of it. No. I mean, I would say it gave us some famous standards that still exist in popular music today. Mm-hmm. And maybe the whole pop references, but I don't think there's a whole lot there. Well, and, and that's the nice thing is, is not every show has to either make a theatrical impact or a societal impact. Yeah. It's nice when it makes one, or it's great when it does both. Um, I think that, especially as a society, I will say one thing that I... I mean, the plot point of having the Chinese um, passengers that they steal the clothes from, and then the whole idea of, uh, you know, pea, uh, pea blossom. Plum blossom. Plum blossom. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You know, that is definitely a... Part of our history that is reflected in this show that is not as pretty of a light as we would like it to be. And I couldn't find it, but I remember as we were reading that, I was like, I wonder if that was in that revival we saw, because I didn't remember it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think uh, that's the, where the problem comes in is how much of a stereotype or a right. trope are we playing of the, like, we're making them into these... Are we making them the joke or are we including them in the joke? Exactly. And I think that, you know, that is a gray area in this show, borderline of, you know, it's borderline yellow face and that's the problem. And it's something that the show can survive without having. You can change the, the the point is that he has uh, sex outside of wedlock. It doesn't matter that, that he had sex with a Chinese woman. And it doesn't matter the, the race and the nationality of the gamblers. Mm-hmm. That's not important. You could have anyone down there for gambling. So this is a simple rewrite that we can make to modernize it. Right. And That's I, why I was like, I, I feel like probably Roundabout rewrote it. Because I don't remember them storming in they, and, and they Chinese were, garb. They were because they had the, the rice paddy hats. Okay. Um, but, that and well, that's the thing. Like, how... 
how we go forward as a society addressing issues like these mm-hmm. in some of our classics is going to be very telling because you do have people who are very much, you know, script purists where they're like, this is the way it was, so we're going to do it this way because it's a reflection of our history. And if you forget your history, you're doomed to repeat it. But then you also have people asking the questions of, but is it relevant to our history? And is it relevant to portray it that What's, way? What is it serving? Yes, what is the, the purpose of it? Because, you know, I, I appreciate that us as a society are moving towards this idea that everyone is, you know, equal, and maybe we shouldn't make fun of people just for them being different. But it's Novel not, concept. But like in this situation, we're not sitting there saying something shameful in our history. We're saying... This is the this was used as a plot device back in the day. So how do we still keep this script whilst, you know, and addressing this plot device, you know? And that's obviously that's not for us necessarily to figure out the answer yet, but the fact that we're talking about it that's the shows important thing. that us as a society are moving towards a more equitable place, which is good progress. Right. I mean, we're nowhere near where we need to be, but you know, the conversation's happening, and as long as we keep that conversation going, things can only get better. Yeah, and that leads us to our final question, which is, is the show relevant? I would say yes. At the end of the day, this show is just about having a good time and a good old, and good old-fashioned fun. And who doesn't like fun? And now more than ever, I think that's what we need. If this show's not revived on Broadway amazing dancing and all, then it's perfect for any theater, high school, community, college, regional, take your pick, you know, summer stock, whatever. The material is accessible and appropriate and familiar to both performer and audience. So it's the perfect show for anyone, no matter what the theater experience is, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. you know. So I think we're all just kind of looking... Not every show should be happy-go-lucky right now, but once, you know, one out of every ten maybe should be an escape show... This, this is, is a, perfect. This is a good escape show, especially that can be accessible to all communities. we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we had the good fortune of getting to see the show twice, back in 2011 and in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, this was our first show at the Sondheim. Oh my which god. Which is a beautiful theater. I love the Sondheim. Okay, sorry. I Time out. I put this in the notes, just so you know. <laughs> I'm sure you see that. Yes, I do, but it's, it's happening now. Yes. We have to talk about it now. So... Uh, I have this idea. Oh, don't share the idea. Don't give it away. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow through on this idea. But the thing that I really want to tell you guys about is the bathroom at the Sondheim Theater is amazing. And if you haven't been to a show on Broadway, then you don't understand why this is important. If you have been to a show on Broadway, you definitely understand where I'm coming from. The bathrooms at the Sondheim are a magical gift to theater audiences, especially to the female audience, because there is a one door in and a separate door out, and the bathroom flows. 
Like, I just... No I pun could, intended. <laughs> I see what you did there. I could talk about this bathroom for ages. Um, I mean, the actual theater is beautiful itself, but the bathrooms. Anyways, okay, we can go so back. So I enjoyed the theater, and I love the, I love the show. Meanwhile, Hope is all about the bathrooms. <laughs> I guess you could say that the theater for me was number one. The bathrooms for Hope were number two. Um, <laughs> oh, gross. I yes, see what you did there. Uh, these are the jokes, folks. Oh, no. you're terrible. So back to the show. It was just an amazing show all in all. It really was. I mean, I was blown away. Um, but look, we, we have talked about the show enough. Let's talk about... Not the show itself during, like, you know. Um, going to the stage show or the backstage, it's it's like in a public plaza, which is really cool. And they have that, it's a like, cover. wooden, yeah, they have that wooden bridge that goes up and down, mm-hmm. walkway behind it. But it's very simple. It's a simple door, and it just says stage door neon. And while we were there, we got to meet Joel Gray, mm-hmm. who was nice. Uh, the late Jessica Walters, which when I heard her passing, I was like, I know that name. And I looked her up and I was like, oh yeah, I know her from Archer and Arrested Development. I was like, but I've met her. Where did I meet her? And I looked it up. I was like, oh my gosh, she was in Anything Goes. She was fabulous. Um, we unfortunately did get to meet Sutton Foster. Um, mm-hmm. I think because if I remember right, we saw this on a matinee. So she was resting, which, you know, considering the performance she gave... You go, Glen Coco. Like, you, you right. sleep and well, then you then Unlike we've talked about before, no one's owed you a visit at the stage door. But the person I remember the most, and absolutely adore, and she's incredible, and I wish her nothing but the best, and I can't wait to see her on stage again, because she's the most giving human in the world, and the kindest human in the world, is Stephanie J. Block. Uh, she was so nice that she gave us, not only, like, she gave us autographs and... Andrew took a picture with her, but she also talked to us. Yeah. I like, just... we chatted for a moment, and I just think that that was so amazing for her to do that for us. Yeah, I told her, I was like, you know, you were amazing. It was just such a show-stopping performance. This is incredible. We love seeing the show. And she was so grateful. I mean, she reminded me, and this is this might be a bad analogy, but if anyone's seen Kristen Wiig's impersonation of Taylor Swift, where she's just, like, <laughs> overwhelmed with, like, gratitude, like, me, it's... Me, you know, and it's just like, you are a star. You are absolutely incredible. I think you were just beyond underappreciated. Like, where did you come from? Oh, my gosh. So, you know, for her to win the Tony a few years later, by few, I mean, you know, eight, uh, for the Cher show, I was just rooting my butt off for her because she, she is... The sweetest woman in the world. She's so talented, so funny. I just, and she, and at least uh, in the brief encounters that we've had with her, she seems very humble. Yeah. Which having all that success and to be able to remain humble is just amazing. It's and, a quality you want to see in another human. And she gave me part of my wedding vows. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, she did. As we have mentioned, the show was truly incredible, and we look forward to seeing it again. You'll be able to catch anything goes. At a theater near you sometime soon, I'm sure. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you.
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by U.S. Army Blues, William Ross Chernoff's Nomads, Sophie Tucker, John Bartman, and Billy Murray. <laughs>